Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Daniel 5, 1-31. Figuring out the best way to hold this. Okay. Uh, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads the writing on the wall, sorry, the writing, and tells me what it means, he'll be clothed in purple, and he'll have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles that my father brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, that you have insight and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and the enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and keep your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. 
And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and bronze, of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel parson. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Father, today we come before you asking you to give us your spirit to open our hearts and open our minds and our ears to hear and receive your word. We thank you so much, Lord, that you do speak to us, that you're not a distant God, you're not a lifeless God, you're not a deaf God, you're a God who, who does speak to us and we can hear you. And we do pray, Lord, today as we hear from the words of Daniel in your, in your scriptures, Lord, that you will uh, move our hearts, inspire our hearts, empower our hearts to be a people who do know you and love you and remember the goodness that comes from the gospel. We do pray that now. Uh, in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. I don't know if you are keeping up with the news this last week, um, but in local news, we heard that 40 men were involved in a big fight in the streets of Runcorn, literally around the corner from my house. Literally, they came together and they went Super Smash Brothers on each other. They came with um, poles and swords and axes. It was a big street brawl. Who, who actually saw that in the news this week. Only half of the room, right? I mean, this was, this was big for me because I heard sirens in the middle of the night and I was like, what is going on? They literally went medieval on each other. 15 men were charged afterwards. They appeared in court and it was discovered, reported in the news that they were members of the local Sikh temple. They were fighting due to a power struggle between two groups and they wanted control. Now that, now, that shouldn't surprise us because, you know, if they were from a, a Christian church, it, it happens. <laughs> People get angry at each other. They want power. Uh, I'm not going to comment on their religion, but I'm sure their religion isn't about division, violence, and hatred, is it? Uh, I'm sure they started in their faith as peaceful, loving, compassionate people. And perhaps somewhere along the way, they, they forgot who they were. They forgot what they represented. At some point, perhaps, they went with the motions and slowly, maybe pride and division and hatred crept into their hearts. 
for their very fellow brothers and sisters there in the temple. But we're not, I'm not surprised because it's so human, isn't it? Isn't that so typical of all of us generally? It's so easy to forget as humans what we're about when pride becomes the greater voice over our hearts. Sure, none of you guys, some of you guys, sure, none of us would resort to violence, but we all know what it's like when we want power over our lives. Doesn't our pride lead us to forget who we are? And even more so for the Christians in the room, who or what we are before God. Don't we forget that sometimes? I mean, each day there's a power struggle. A power struggle for our hearts. Each day there's a power struggle for autonomy and the direction of our lives. And each day we forget who is on the throne. Is it Jesus or is it me? Because the way I see it, the culture around us places so many pressures and expectations on us. We're overwhelmed, we're stressed, we worry, we're consumed by the matters of this world. We party, we drink, we scroll, we binge, and life just passes us by. And we forget, don't we? We forget who we are and who God is as we're carried downstream by the tide of our culture. We want to love Jesus. We want to love our world. We want to love each other. But instead, we're loving our own egos, our careers, our own kingdoms. Sure, it's easy, isn't it? to take Jesus out of the picture. It's much easier to love me and what I want more than anything else. And yeah, sure, we have those moments. There are moments where we remember there was a period where we were on fire for Jesus. We heard the message of the gospel. We were all in. You got saved 100%. Get me baptized. I want to serve church. I want to serve God. But then the years drain on and you've got to a point where you forgot why you did what you did. You forget why you're even here. And when God calls us to live for his kingdom, his desires, his purposes, sometimes we want to draw swords against God, against each other, because our kingdoms matter more. So today, the story before us is here to ask the question, do we know, will we remember who it is or what we are living for? Our chapter today tells us about a Babylonian king He's forgotten about God and what God has done in the past in the life of Babylon, in the kingdom of Babylon. And he, this king, is living for himself. His very arrogance and pride leads to a rebellion against the God who rules and is in control. Now we have our protagonist, Daniel, on the scene to remember, uh, remember who God is, to remind him who God is. And God shows up in spectacular ways, doesn't he, with the writings on the wall. But let's get into it. Where are we at? Israel has been exiled for 70 years now in the, in the land of Babylon. Babylon reigned for 70 years, this modern-day Iraq. Uh, Daniel, is in this, uh, the, who this book of the Bible is named after, he's been living there since he was a young man. Uh, so we can assume he's an old man now, right? probably in his 80s or something. Uh, the king of Babylon that we heard about in the first four chapters, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's dead now, gone. And now there's a new young king on the throne. His name is Belshazzar, we're told. A young king sitting on the throne over Babylon. It's the night before it falls to the Persian Empire. He's throwing a feast. The nobles, the elites of society, eating, drinking, wives and concubines are there too. What does he do? He orders the gold and silver goblets, the artifacts, the, the precious uh, booty that was stolen from Jerusalem's temple, put in their treasury, in the king's treasury, not yet used, right? This is precious artifacts from God's temple that Nebuchadnezzar didn't even touch, the king before him. What does he do? He orders those to come in to drink from these goblets. Now we see this young punk thinking, you know, uh, I'm going I'm to take these goblets and I'm going to use them to celebrate. The first mistake is this. 
they were used in God's temple in Jerusalem. These precious goblets that were set aside for God and for God's purposes originally. But the king here, he thinks he's fit enough to drink from them, that he's more important than God himself. Isn't that interesting? This is blasphemy at its best. That's mistake number one. But he goes further, doesn't he? He's so sacrilegious in what he does. He uses these very goblets, we're told, filled with wine to make a toast. To who? To his idols made of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. He first commits blasphemy against our holy God, and then secondly, he uses these holy items to toast to his gods that are statues of gold and silver. The wording here is purposeful for us, right? What are the goblets made out of? Gold and silver. Who is he toasting to? Statues made out of gold and silver. He commits an idolatry, worshipping these lifeless gods, and Daniel will call him out on this. You know, you've got your Bibles open, right? You're following along. Verse 23, later down, further down, it says, You've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. This brash young king, Belshazzar, thinks he's better than Nebuchadnezzar before him, and he thinks he's better than God. He goes into the arena against God. He sets himself up against God. Daniel says, this is how you failed. You have not humbled yourself. Instead, you put yourself on the throne, toasting to other gods, thinking you're better than God himself. It's so easy, though, isn't it, for us when we think about this. Hey, it's so easy. I'd make mistake number one, and I'd probably make mistake number two in our lives as well. Not, Not using maybe goblets of gold and silver, but what about the idols that we have in our hearts? They're more subtle, aren't they? Beauty, brawn, brains, brawn, wealth, status, affirmation, validation. We crave for those things. Respect, comfort, convenience, love. The idols that are lifeless. But we pray to them. We yearn for them. We hope that they'll satisfy and give us what our hearts desire. Only to realize they're lifeless. They don't hear us. They don't speak to us. And each day we pour out our lives on the altar of worship for these things. We use the very good gifts that God has given us, our bodies, our finances, our possessions, and we use these gifts from God to worship these idols, don't we? We throw ourselves into sexual sin, into pornography, promiscuous sex, hoping that through the giving of our bodies we'll get the pleasure or love we so desperately want. Our money, a gift from God, we only have it because God has entrusted us with it, yet how do we use our money? We rob God of it. We don't give to God. We don't give to his church. We don't give to God's work. In our worship of comfort we self uh, and self, we hoard it. We spoil ourselves rather than be generous to others. Or what about God, how he's given you abilities and talents? How are you using those gifts to make a name for yourself? Or in all those things, are you using your gifts, your talents to glorify God? Using that big, smart brain of yours to glorify his name and not your own. Our idols are so subtle. Yet can't you see, often than not, when our minds and our hearts obsess over these things, we're giving it over to worship. We all worship something. Uh, The American novelist, he's a college professor, David Foster Wallace, he said this, it's a popular quote. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is, we, only, the only choice we get is what to worship. He nails it. Our hearts are hardwired for worship. 
The only question is who or what will you choose to worship? You know, our hearts are like an idol factory. They keep manufacturing new things to worship. We jump from one thing to the other, hoping that this is what we need to give us the contentment or joy or pleasure or freedom or security that I'm looking for. We replace God with these lifeless idols, and by, by golly gosh, they own us sometimes, don't they? Our emotions, golly gosh, our emotions are affected. Our choices are directed. Our very lives are in the hands of these idols. They make us, they break us. Joyful one second, miserable the next. Tim Keller, the pastor in the US, he calls idols such as these counterfeit gods. We want them to fulfill us, but they can't do what only God can. They're counterfeit, they're fake. None of those idols will or can ever give our hearts what they so desperately need. They can't give us the deep peace. They can't give us eternity. They don't have that sort of power. Daniel warns the king, when we use what belongs to God, even our very lives, to worship idols, we're setting ourselves up as enemies of God. We're rejecting who he is and putting ourselves on the throne of worship. Ultimately, it's not God that is at the center of our love and our priorities and our ambitions. It's self. We put ourselves at the center of the universe. And in this story, the last king of Babylon, he's held to account. His pride blinds him. He's at the center of his universe. He is the king he can, who can do. He thinks he can do whatever he wants. And in doing so, sets, him off, sets himself up against God. What happens? Let's look at verse 5. This is where it gets crazy. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom." Now, he says the third highest ruler here because uh, his dad, in fact, isn't King Nebuchadnezzar. It's King Nabonidus in historical records. And so King Nabonidus, Nabonidus is still in control. He's still alive at this point, but he's given uh, reign over to King Belshazzar, this young man. So Belshazzar is, in fact, the second highest ruler. He says he'll give the, uh, this gold chain and, and make someone the third highest ruler instead. But that's, that's not what we should be concerned by, right? That's not the, like, we should be concerned by the fact that there's a floating hand writing on the wall. Uh, that's, that, that would freak anyone out. Uh, imagine that right now, if that happened, it would freak us out, wouldn't it? I visited London uh, a few years ago, and, uh, and I shared this with you earlier a few weeks ago. I was at the Royal Galleries, and I stumbled in the Royal Galleries on this painting, and it's titled Belshazzar's Feast. It's by Rembrandt, the Dutch artist, right, in the 1600s. And you can see the writing on the wall there. And I stumbled on it, and I think, oh, I'm going to use this photo one day, and I'm going to share it with our church, because I'm going to preach from Daniel 5. And here it is, everyone. I found the photo. Here it is. It's my photo. It's not from Google. I could have just got it from Google and showed you, but here it is, right? Now, you can look at this photo, and you can see, you can see in the artwork his, his eyes. He, he can see that fear in his eyes, like Rembrandt really want the fear in everyone. They're like, what is going on? There's a hand writing on the wall. And this description, it says, it says the wording is so intentional. Uh, if we translate to the original language, like his knees are knocking, legs became weak, that sort of thing, it's actually better worded that he was so scared he was literally crapping his pants. It's, he, I would be, wouldn't you? Uh, he calls in the enchanters, the astrologers and the diviners. These are the guys who have come up multiple times in the book already. And uh, they, they, we hear about them and, and how useless they are. They don't have the answers. Their job is to read star signs and come up with the vibe. What's the vibe or what's going on? They don't know the truth. They can't read the writing on the wall. They can't interpret dreams from God. They just say what you want to hear. 
And we have this in our world too. That we call them gurus, social media influencers. They sell books and they make millions of dollars and the world calls them wise because they tell you and me what we want to hear. They, they say, this is what I did to be successful. Just buy my program. You can have the same life too. If you want to look as pretty as me, just buy this product. They make money from the desperation of people who aren't content with their lives. You see, it's not magic. We've got to be discerning. What they do is actually just feed into the idolatry of our hearts. They just keep telling us the same narrative that self, yourself, is king, that you are the center of the universe, that you should worship you and offer up your life to the things that don't eternally matter. Really? Aren't all these social media influencers, the gurus, the wisdom of the world, aren't they just feeding into the narrative that you don't need God? Forget about him. Come and worship what the world can offer. Beauty, fame, success. These wise men in Babylon, they can't give what the king really needs, real answers. And so the queen shows up, has to remind him of this old man in the kingdom called Daniel who has the power to interpret dreams and has wisdom from God. So he gets called in. Now remember again, Babylon only lasted for 70 years, right? From Nebuchadnezzar to, to Belshazzar, 70 years passes. Belshazzar would have known the stories of what happened in the empire. He would have known the stories of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And we heard about it last week. Remember what happened to him? He was on the rooftop of his palace and he looked around and thought in his pride, look at how much I've amassed. This is my kingdom. Look at how great I am. And what happens to him? In his pride, he was humbled. Daniel repeats in verse 20, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. Verse 21, he was driven away from people, given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and a grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Here's a story you need to remember. That king was humbled by the God of Israel. Yet you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Oh, they give me goosebumps, those words. They're, they're chilling words. Though you knew all this. Man, I hope they're not words that God is going to say to me one day. You knew the gospel, and you still did not humble yourself before the gospel. Daniel, he drops this truth bomb on Belshazzar. He reads the writing on the wall. This is what it says. Mene, mene, tackle parson. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your, uh, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Judgment has come for this king, for the entire Babylonian empire. Read, the, read history on this. Historical records tell us that the Persians, they laid siege to the city. They surrounded it. They dug canals to divert water from the Euphrates River so they could enter the city while the water was low. It was really strategic. This conquest, you know when this conquest happened in history? It happened during a time of a big Babylonian feast. That's what we're hearing in Daniel chapter 5. A big Babylonian feast is happening. And the Persians, they conquer Babylon this very night. The writing on the wall is there. A ju the judgment is coming. We've heard this phrase before, the writing's on the wall. Uh, Sam Smith, we know Sam Smith the singer, he wrote a song called The Writing's on the Wall. We know Destiny's Child released an album in the 90s, The Writing's on the Wall. It's a modern day phrase, isn't it? If you don't know what it means, it means something bad is going to happen. Uh, you know, let me give you an example. Your girlfriend's treating you real badly, right? She's ghosting you, she's texting other men, The Writing's on the Wall. 
That's right there in front. She's going to dump you. You guys are going to break up. The writing's on the wall. The writing's on the wall is from here in Daniel chapter 5. Because that's exactly what Belshazzar needs to see. The writing is on the wall. His days have been numbered. He has been weighed and found wanting. His kingdom will fall to the Persians and the Medes. We see this picture of pride and idolatry and judgment come for this king of Babylon. But it's a story that leaves us asking, where do we stand before God? Will we be weighed and found wanting as well? Let's be honest with ourselves. We have to see that that sin of pride and idolatry exists in our hearts too. The Bible is so clear that as human beings, we in our pride have turned away from God and we have turned to worship created things. Earlier this year, do you remember what we preached on, the the book that we spent half a year on? We, We spent a lot of time in Romans, didn't we? Romans chapter 1, verse 18, I've got on the screen, it says this. For the wrath of God, maybe I don't have it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And our unrighteousness is that we suppress the truth. We look around the world. We can look around. We can see the truth is there. God exists. The created world around us points to us to a creator, to a designer that has made all things function so perfectly, so beautifully, so complex. Yet it's a complex world of technicolor, isn't it? That isn't by mistake or by chance. Yet our hearts are led to worship, not the creator, but created things. While while the, the nature and created world around us screams his glory, we shut our hearts, we shut our eyes, and instead our allow our hearts to go to the things that we hope will fulfill us. Anything but God. The truth is right in front of us, yet we choose to reject that truth and to worship the idols made of gold, silver, bronze, and stone. Romans chapter 3, Paul writes for us, For all have sinned, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. I know, if you're not a Christian here today, if you're not a Christian, being called a sinner sounds offensive. I get that. But simply, it means that our hearts will 100% choose and worship ourselves over God every time. We are all guilty of this, me included. We will sit on our thrones and we will look at our world and we will look at our achievements and our default will be, wow, look at how great I am. Let me pour a toast to the gods of status and sex and success and pleasure and forget the God who gives it all to us. We need to be honest about where we stand before God. We need to be honest about the idols of our heart. We've got to look deeply at our heart. Tell me, what, it is, what is it that it's consumed by? What are you chasing so much so that it's so much more important to you than God and His glory? What is the thing that will break you if you don't have it? What will make you miserable if you don't get it? It's so easy to go with the ebbs and flows of life and not to stop and think, what is it that my heart is worshipping, which the world around me tells me that I need more than God? The reality is before God and without God, we are guilty. The scales are weighed and we're going to be found wanting because of our sin. Pride, selfishness, we're guilty of it. Rejecting him, putting ourselves on the throne, I'm guilty. And if you don't think you are, then maybe it's time for you as well to see the writing on the wall. The fate of Belshazzar is our fate too if we choose a life that rejects God and spits in his face, that chooses to use the very gifts he gives us and to worship our idols instead. Yet that fate doesn't need to be our story. Because when we come to Jesus, the scales are tipped in our favor. We can have forgiveness in Jesus. The story reminds us of our fallenness, yes, but it also points us to the one who took the weight of our sin and put it upon himself. 
We aren't going to be found wanting on the scales of God's justice when we have Jesus. And this truly is the beauty and wonder of the gospel of grace. Jesus came to our world to die. He took the punishment for our idolatrous, proud, sinful hearts. He took our sin and placed it upon himself. He died the death we deserved. He faced hell for us. He took the judgment of God at, at his death so that we don't have to see the writing on the wall. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, instead of judgment, through faith in Jesus, we get righteousness. He literally flips the script, so he becomes the great substitute. Now understand this, judgment means not just physical, but spiritual death. A separation from all things good. The separation from the God of love and mercy and kindness and peace and joy to instead have to be in the presence of God's wrath and to experience everything not good, not loving, not peaceful, not joyful. That's the reality we have to face when we choose to live a life rejecting God. He gives us over to our desires, to an eternity without every good thing that comes from him. But Jesus, he provides a way out. He offers us life with God. It's because of his amazing grace. He stands on the scales of justice for us. It's in him He's the one who's found wanting before God. He faces the fate that we should have for our sin. Isn't that so amazing? Isn't his grace and his love so amazing? Amazing grace. We didn't deserve Jesus. You don't deserve Jesus. I definitely don't deserve Jesus. Nothing we've done deserves such love and forgiveness that came at the cost of his life. Yet he freely gave it anyway. You know, while this story is about a hand that writes on a wall, there's another story in the Bible about the writings of the hand of God. It's not on the wall, but it's on the ground. It's in John chapter 8. It's a beautiful story where uh, the teachers of the law, let's read it, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, he bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What beautiful words from Jesus. Freely forgiven, neither do I condemn you. We have the offer of forgiveness in him. His death and resurrection covers us all. At the cross, he sacrificed his life for yours and for mine, purely by grace, purely by his love for us. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Isn't that such good news? If it is your first time hearing this, you can come to Jesus. You can ask for forgiveness. You can come before him. You can call him Lord too. You can see him as your great substitute and the one who takes the sins of pride and selfishness and that punishment in our place. He has come to forgive sinners like you and I. You can trust and know that there is forgiveness and love for you too. But for all of us here, what will a life of trusting Jesus look like? Jesus says to the woman, Go and leave your life of sin. He's saying to her, repent. 
turn away from putting yourself on the throne to take self away from the center, but to instead have Jesus who is rightfully deserving of that position in your life. Repent of the pride and selfishness of our hearts. Turn towards him who humbles us and reminds us that our little kingdoms are all under his rule and his reign. Let's think of some examples. Some, let me give you some suggestions of how this might look like, what this might look like for us. God calls us to love Jesus, right? And to love others as we love ourselves. That's what worship of God requires. So maybe then repentance is actually applying that truth to the things of our hearts, right? The things that we pursue. Time is such a precious commodity. But maybe instead of it's, it's less time consumed by our, our personal ambitions and goals and more time investing it in others around us. That's one way of seeing it. Perhaps it's putting our ambitions and our goals under God's reign and rule. So that what you're achieving isn't to make your name great, but to use your goals that you set, the opportunities you have to make his name great in this world. Maybe it's wealth. You've cons- you're consumed with the crypto, the investments, the early retirement plan. And so maybe to love God, to love others, looks like giving a big chunk of your wealth away. Because you're still going to be okay. And because, frankly, God has gifted you with that money, and he, call- he calls you to steward it for him. I talk about money a lot because I know it's a real issue for our generation. We get so caught up in ourselves sometimes. And it's so easy, isn't it, to think, I'm generous because I tie that church. I support a few charities. I give myself a pat on the back. Mikey, wow, good job being generous. What, 12%, 13% of what you have given away? I'm kidding myself. Today's Compassion Sunday of Providence. I'm going to give a plug for this. It's $48 a month to sponsor a child. Food for a month, clothing, education, the opportunity to learn about Jesus. What, that's about $600 a year. And yes, that's a lot of money for them because their living cost is different, right? In Australia, it costs a lot more to live here. I get that. But we think we're generous, giving 600 bucks a year to, to, a, to a child who has an opportunity for life, to live and to have access to all the things that we take for granted. Yeah, I'll sit down and I'll do my budget. I don't know about you, but we put aside, what, $2,000, $3,000, $4,000 for our yearly holidays in luxury hotels, sipping margaritas, eating out at fancy restaurants. We live with so much excess in our lives that maybe we should consider how can it be used to glorify God and to love others, our wealth. Yes, holidays are a gift. Enjoy your holidays. I'm not saying don't. But can I give the same amount? Can I budget $2,000, $3,000, $4,000 to someone else's livelihood if I can spend that on myself? And maybe this is just a thought today. You might already have a kid with compassion. Maybe it's time to think, hey, I can actually sponsor two kids or three kids. Let's remember the great generosity of our Lord Jesus. He gave up everything so we could have everything. And for us to be sacrificial in our generosity isn't about just giving our excess. Generosity is when it comes at a cost to us. But, but maybe money isn't an issue for you. Maybe it's not about your, your, your love for money. Maybe, maybe you don't idolize that, but maybe you want to sponsor because you simply know that it's hard for you to love other people. It's easy just to love yourself. Maybe you want to sponsor that because you want to love others around you. And here's an opportunity to do that. You know, I need to be honest with myself. Maybe we all need to be. It's time for me to admit I'm not actually that generous. I'm selfish. I'm proud with my money. I need to repent and consider how to be generous as God calls me to because every day I'd rather put myself on the throne of my life rather than Jesus who deserves to be there. This is really hard to talk about, isn't it? Uh, You have to ask your heart some really hard questions about what you're living for in life. What is at the center? What consumes your thoughts and your time? And only you know how to answer that. Because these are all things we should be challenging our heart with. 
be aware of what, 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 what is battling for your heart each day, that struggle for power. Fight against the idols we're tempted to worship. Keep coming back to the God in the scriptures and see him for who he truly is, worthy of our worship. It's easy to forget. Without our vigilance, we will end up like Belshazzar, who did not humble himself, even though he knew all this. He knew all about this God that is worthy of our worship. So today, one last thing. I want you to consider this. This is going to sound pretty extraordinary for some of you who didn't grow up in church. It might even sound foreign to you. It's, it's so simple, but have you ever considered coming to church every single week? Wow. Mikey, are you serious? Is that a big ask? Uh, every single week, unless you're sick, of course, or you're traveling or holidays, whatever. But in our generation today, we're, we're not raised to think like that, are we? Uh, we're, 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 we're taught to think about ourselves. If Sunday means I get to go to brunch with my friends, I'm going to choose that over God. I'm going to choose that over my church family. But I'm not asking you to think about coming to church every single week for me. Don't do it for me because I'm telling you now. Do it for God because you trust that he is good. Do it for you because you know that it's good for, to, to, to be reminded about the gospel each week. I'm going to teach my kids this. And I'm praying, right? I'm praying for you too and for my kids. <laughs> You're all my kids. They will not breed legalism. I don't want you to do it out of legalism because it will make you a good person. No, do it because you want to do it, not because you have to do it. I'm praying that it won't lead to, lead to bitterness as well against the church, against God. Don't do it if you're doing it for the wrong reasons. But why? Because you believe Jesus is worth your love, your energy, your time above everything else. Because you want and you need to be reminded every week of the love and forgiveness that you have in Jesus. That it's by his grace that you're saved to God and into this church family. It's by that love you're called to love God and love others. You see, in a world that wants our attention that tells us to hustle, that says you are the center of the universe where pride and idolatry so easily creeps into our heart. It's so easy to forget. Don't wait for the writing on the wall to appear. And don't forget the good news of Jesus. Let the gospel be our first and highest love. Let Jesus be the one who sits on the throne by which our lives center. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you humbled, knowing we're not perfect, knowing that each day is a battle, a battle to love you more and more and to love ourselves less, to know that you are the God who is worthy of our worship and not, our, not us, that you are the king that deserves to be on the throne and not us. Help us to see that we are loved, we are complete, we are whole because of Jesus. We have everything already. We are, we are known as your children. We have been given the highest status in the universe. Lord, you are such a good and great God. We've been given life for eternity. And what more could we ask for? Help us to embrace that status, embrace that truth. Help us to live by that reality day by day, not wanting, not needing more because we have enough in Jesus. And so, Lord, with the idols and the pride in our hearts, help us, Lord, to be humbled, to come to the cross day by day, reminding ourselves of the goodness that we have in Jesus so that we're not yearning for other things and making other things bigger than you. Help us, Lord, to be a people who, who believe that truth about who you are, that you are the God who is the King, who is worthy of our worship, the one who's worthy to be at the center of our universes. And we pray that for all of us here today, Lord, because we believe Jesus is worth it. Because we believe you've called us to be able to live a life loving Jesus, each other, and our world. 
And so today I pray that your heart, will, your, your, your spirit will convict our hearts. And Lord, that we will uh, day by day continue to grow in our love for you. For your glory, in his name we pray. Amen.